0: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Reynolds, MD, FRCPC, to discuss his article published in the October Critical Care Medicine. His article is entitled, Longitudinal Changes in Procalcitonin in a Heterogeneous Group of Critically Ill Patients. Dr. Reynolds is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So, Dr. Reynolds, thank you for joining us and and doing this podcast. We'd like to be able to discuss with you some of the reasons why you did this study and and why procalcitonin is relevant to the current discussions regarding the management of patients with suspected sepsis.
1: Sure. You know, maybe the best way to do it is to explain how I initially got interested in it. I'm a... Uh, infectious disease and critically care trained and, and my pharmacist likes to tease me that I'm the natural antibiotic cycler of the group where I come in and I stop a lot of the antibiotics and I don't feel that I have any worse outcomes than my colleagues do and, and at one point I tried to realize and tried to think how can I actually make this easier and, and more um, uh, appropriate for other people to, to stop antibiotics and that left, led to my interest in procalcitonin. Specifically, you know, we are tasked as intensivists to do everything we can for our patient, yet we have this simultaneous um, responsibility to um, be careful with the antibiotics we use and, and we're told constantly that we're uh, contributing to development of resistance by overuse of antibiotics. So um, that led to um, some further work that I did with my group on, we did a, a systematic uh uh, meta-analysis and economic review, and then onto um, onto a review of a database that we had. Um, you know, just in 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 summary, why we move that way is is remember that I'm I'm sure we're all face constantly the situation in which a patient comes in and it's quite chaotic and they're in shock, but we're not totally sure they're septic or not. And if we could have any information that there is either the presence or an absence of infection at the time that we initially see them admit admit them to the ICU, that would be useful. But Another bias and another, another research interest that I have and that I, I'm, I'm building towards eventually is that my, my bias is that the vast majority of antibiotics we use is not on day one or day two, but it's on day 10 or day 14 mm-hmm. when people forget to stop antibiotics or that, in fact, uh, we know that the infection is or the, the situation is not infectious. So that might, that's, I think, potentially, and I might return to that later if you ask me about it, but about where pal-
0: procalcitonin can play a role. As I was reading the manuscript, there seems to be um, a large element is stewardship of antibiotics. We end up starting people on antibiotics that have very little indication. Perhaps we leave them on longer than they need to, waiting for uh, negative uh, culture results, and people are getting large doses of antibiotics or protracted period of times. There's complications associated with those antibiotics, be it things such as acute kidney injury or the development of C. diff colitis.
1: Well, that's the you know, and uh, I think the, the literature is emerging that, that that might not be quite as useful, at least at the initial diagnostic time. Um, but, you know, that's initially how it, it was, uh, procal- procalcitonin was envisioned and, and evaluated.
0: So with that as our background, the objective of your investigation was to do what?
1: Well really we wanted to look at um, uh, closely look at how procalcitonin changes in a group of, uh, of ICU patients over time, And this is in preparation for our own um, own trials but also to help explain what's been going on in the literature because you know we really have some very conflicting results that are coming out, some stuff that really some very well-designed trials which uh, you know the Boadma trial had shown a reduction in antibiotic use um, and that was safe for ICU patients. Um, but it had some limitations in that 53% of the the, the experimental group, the physicians in the experimental group actually had protocol violations. So, you know, there's lots of different reasons for that. But um, but that's that's really why we, st- we wanted to do our studies, to see what was going on uh, in this population and to see if we could collapse across surgical and medical groups and to see if there were any other factors that were impacting on procalcitonin independent of, of purely infection.
0: Now, in your study, you segregated those patients who had infections in the two separate groups. Could you tell us what those groups were and, and break that out a little bit further for our listeners?
1: Infected groups were sicker. Um, the reasons they were admitted to the ICU was different, obviously, because of much more uh, heavily medical-type patients. Um, and obviously, respiratory infections was a big, big role in that. But they had a higher um, procalcitonin level, which we, which we did expect to
0: find. I was surprised that when I read the paper that there was really no difference in this series between medical and surgical patients
1: so yeah, no, I have to agree that that was one that we we didn't some didn't expect to see as 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 much, but it could be could also reflect that procalcitonin although not Wholly, um, not entirely specific for infection, is, is still reflective of, um, is heavily influenced by presence or absence of infection. And most of the time, our patients that come to us in the ICU, uh, we, you know, I like to think that we do a good job getting control of infection and getting source control.
0: So how do you pull together your findings with the previous uh, published information on procalcitonin?
1: Well, I think that's you know that that's really interesting because uh, the literature is evolving at a, at a rapid rate. And there's actually two—I'm sure you know—there's two papers in critical care medicine that have come out recently. One is a, a Belgian group, um, and one is wondering, um, looking at procalcitonin in terms of a, uh, a trigger for, for rapid outreach. And there also was a the Jensen paper that came out recently, which was a great uh, uh, paper from Europe as well that looked. Um, That looked at procalcitonin. And I I think it's important to understand in terms of procalcitonin, a lot of these studies, both the Belgian and uh, the Jensen study, were looking at procalcitonin as a means to start antibiotics. So using the measure of procalcitonin, whether to help us decide whether we should, somebody's coming into us if they're just, as you said before, whether they're just CERSY or whether they're truly infected. And they found, you know, that data is not very encouraging for procalcitonin to be true. You know, the, the receiver operator curve was not great um, in the jensen study the group that had procalcitonin values actually had uh, stayed longer in the icu and were ventilated for longer so you know the, i think the interesting thing though about that is that and and how that's consistent with our study that shows shock is independently associated with procalcitonin i think procalcitonin per se is not going to add a whole lot of value when someone comes in and they're sick. And, you know, I think this, this logically makes sense. If somebody comes in in shock and you had a lab value to tell you that you probably shouldn't give antibiotics, I'd be really nervous on that first 24 mm-hmm. to 48 hours to not give antibiotics. And, you know, because I know that the mortality is so high if I either give inappropriate antibiotics or, um, or if I withhold antibiotics when there's, in fact, an infection. Right. right? Where I really think procalcitonin can play a role, and, and, and this is my, my bias, and this is one of the things that was incorporated within the BWADMA study is stopping antibiotics um, over time. So using it as a marker of, uh, of the patient of when they've actually finished um, clearing the bacteria from their system. You know, and I, I, I don't think it's too far away that we're going to be using nucleic amplification technologies, PCR technologies, to look at um, bacterial load, but we also the the piece that we need to add to that is how the endogenous individual is interacting with the bacteria, and I think procalcitonin is right now the most promising marker to help us uh,
0: interpret that. So let's go fast forward a few years. Uh, you mentioned uh, in the future we can anticipate that we'll be starting antibiotics based on the results of a procalcitonin level or PCR amplica- amplification. Um, What's it going to look like in a few years? Uh, What's going to determine um, when we're going to start antibiotics on a patient who we suspect sepsis in?
1: Amplification technologies, PCR technologies to look at um, bacterial load. But we also, the the piece that we need to add to that is how the endogenous individual is interacting with the bacteria. And I think procalcitonin is right now the most promising marker to help us uh, interpret that. Well, what I really think is that we're probably going to, at the time that somebody comes in to see us in the ICU, we know that um, even if we miss one in 100 or one in 500 inappropriately based on our tests, we can improve, we'll, we'll increase our mortality. So I, I still think we'll start with aggressive broad spectrum antibiotics because um, we know they work. But what I think we'll understand more is about is about sepsis and the bacterial load. That's that's really what I see evolving from my read of the literature. And so, you know, remember, things like Neisseria meningitides are exquisitely sensitive to cep- cephalosporins, right? So if you, same thing with, with strep species. So we'll, you know, right now we treat everything the same way. But I think over five to 10 years, what we'll be doing is tailoring our, our antibiotic therapy and the duration of our antibiotic therapy to how quickly the, or how sensitive the bacteria is to our antibiotics, how quickly we clear the bacterial load and, and how well they penetrate into the, the protected space or the non-protected space where the bugs are. So, you know, that's really where I see things going and where I see ro- uh, things like procalcitonin and,
0: and PCR bacterial loads and things like that. So for the sake of illustration, let's say that hypothetically, I'm a real nervous uh, practitioner. Uh, I suspect the patient has an infection. Uh, I've been treating somebody with 13, 14 days of IV antibiotics for a decade, decade and a half. And what you're saying is is that uh, using the objective information that we can obtain from this procalcitonin level that rather having a set duration of antibiotic therapy, that I would start antibiotics, a couple days I'd get a procalcitonin level, that level would be low, I could then stop the antibiotics, continue to follow the procalcitonin level, and if that doesn't begin to escalate back up, I'm good at limiting my duration of antibiotics, say from 14 days down to five days, and I'd have good biological evidence that by stopping the antibiotics, I'm not having a resurgence of the infection, and therefore reducing You know, antibiotic duration by two thirds.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that was one of the really um, the really interesting things that came out of the Boadman trial. And one of the my primary research interests right now, we actually I'm actually running a a pilot study that's looking at that, trying to address. the you know the the physician adherence to the protocol so we're actually blinding it so physicians don't know whether antibiotics are stopped or not um, but I'm also mixing it with a clinical algorithm in the sense that patients have to be stable out of shock and getting better because that's really when we're looking at stopping antibiotics so what I want to have is for you know for a clinician because we're you know we're all very patient-centered we really want to get our patients better I want to pro- help provide a tool that um, and I think procalcitonin is one part of that tool to be able to say listen The body showing that it's you know the the inflammatory system is showing that it's settled down so not only is your patient clinically better but you don't need to finish the 14 days of antibiotics for the strep pneumo that was that's already gone and was gone with within two days or three days of antibiotics and i think the important point is that bacteria differ immensely you know staph aureus you'll find growing from everywhere it grows like a weed and it and it takes forever to clear um, whereas, like I said, some of the other bacteria clear very quickly, and, and I think we have to start tailoring our antibiotics to, in fact, um, in fact, what's happening and give clinicians a tool that they can do that safely and confidently with.
0: Based on what you're saying, if that I stop my antibiotics on day four or day five, if I don't see a rise in that procalcitonin level, I'm okay in stopping those antibiotics. I don't need to continue based on the data we're seeing on the procalcitonin.
1: That's a very reasonable thing right because we do know that although when you take it into context of a whole other a whole bunch of other things whether the patient is stable they're improving the initial reason they came in with is you know what you think is resolved so the clinical characteristics and then you know it gives you some more assurance that you've been able that you've made the right decision you know when you, if you extrapolate some of the Greek data um, where they looked at uh, people initially being admitted to the ICU with a high procalcitonin the mortality is higher if it if, the, if it doesn't drop quickly Um, So, again, I think that's a bit more of um, a—it's an extrapolation, but a reasonable one to say that if your procalcitonin is going back up significantly uh, after you stop antibiotics, that's probably a bad sign, and you better get on
0: it. And with your investigation, this may be okay to use in surgical patients, where before we thought that was a contraindication.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that we have to be a little careful because I still am suspicious that um, recurrent surgery may uh, uh may provide an inflammatory nitis in terms of at least bacterial translocation and, and things like that but it but the data that we have thus far suggests that it's okay to cross across is to do um, a look at it across the patients and there has been you know the the, the, uh, the Schutz data from before showed that uh, they looked at predominantly surgical patients although they looked at not the surgical infections and and it, and it seemed that like it was reasonable reasonable to to use procalcitonin to stop antibiotics
0: I know this wasn't the focus of your investigation, but what about um, its use in uh, children and in neonates?
1: It's difficult to be entirely sure and how generalizable we are. You know, I still remember my, my fellowship in the, uh, in the pediatric ICU, and I called them all little aliens because, <laughs> you know, the, the, the drugs are different, the doses are different, the lab values are different. So, you know, I, I hope that it has an effect uh, across, but, you know, that really has to be validated for sure.
0: You said you did an economic study, so I, I have to ask: Is you know what is your prediction of the amount of antibiotics we give, for empirical reasons or for duration of therapy reasons that aren't indicated? Twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent. What's the, what's the number, and what would be the economic impact uh, in dollars of, of all these medications that perhaps have no benefit?
1: See that's the, that's I think the golden question right we we don't know right now in terms of that we we give the our job is as clinicians pr- primarily is to err on the side of patient safety is always to do the safest thing and the right thing for our patient that's in front of us at any one time um, it, it's it's actually amazing the the pilot study that I'm I'm running it, we're having a tough time initially um, recruiting patients because families say wow you know even though it's safe on all these things and you're telling me it's okay to stop, I've been told for so long to complete my 14 days of antibiotics. Um, and so I think we have a bit of a paradigm shift that we have to start considering um, antibiotics as harmful as soon as they've done their job, right? Um, as soon as they've completed their task, any more antibiotics beyond that are going to be are going to be harmful both from a patient's you up to resistant infections from an economic perspective because you're now using drugs you don't need to do um, from your ICU overall perspective you're getting your nurses to hang drugs you don't need and blah 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 blah. so you know I I, I can tell you from my clinical experience that um, that I stop antibiotics a fair amount of my unit when I come on because we we do a week at a time and Monday morning I come on and I, I stop a whole lot yeah. and it's not because I think my colleagues are doing the wrong thing I just think it's it's a reflection of our tolerance of um, and our perspective of what antibiotics and their actual role is.
0: We've been talking to Dr. Reynolds regarding his uh, uh, current paper in the Journal of Critical Care Medicine regarding the use of procalcitonin as a launch to, in a longitudinal to study to evaluate uh, sepsis. Dr. Reynolds, thanks for joining us today on iCritical Care. This concludes another edition of the i Critical Care podcast. Please check our website at www.sccm.org/iCriticalCare for more episodes or search SCCM in iTunes for the i Critical Care podcast. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy.
2: Experience the true beauty of the Caribbean at SCCM's 42nd Critical Care Congress to be held January 19th through 23rd, 2013, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. From the breathtaking sunsets and shimmering beaches to the ancient caves and cool, mountainous, subtropical rainforests, Puerto Rico provides a vast canvas of diverse environments and unrivaled natural wonders. Surrender to the charm of Island Life at the 2013 Congress, where more than 4,000 critical care professionals will come together to advance the mission of providing the best possible care to critically ill and injured patients. Register today at www.sccm.org congress. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is the Chief Medical Officer at Centennial Women's and Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.